going to take a one-week break and fly home to Malaysia. You know, it just is not uh, economically viable. Um, so I, I didn't have anywhere to go. My friend invited me to go uh, with him to his town of Woodhull, Illinois. So we show up there, and it was a lovely, you know, I'm sort of thinking, oh, this is great. This is all just part of the storybook heartland of America kind of experience, you know. And, and the town smells a little bit like um, the particular livestock that they raise in that town, you know which would be pigs, and, uh, and, and, and so, so we're, you know, we're doing all sorts of stuff, and he says, hey, why don't, why don't, we're all going to go to the local high school football game, because that's what you do, you know, that's sort of the, the thing to do, so I'm, like, I'm thinking, okay, this is great, you know, uh, just, just joining in the Woodhull uh, way, you know, so, so we go to this high school football game, and the, the, the game's all right, and he introduced me, introduces me after this, the game is over uh, to one of their family friends, and he says, oh, hey, so-and-so, uh, this is, actually, it's, it's my friend Ben. His mom introduces us. She says, hey, this is my friend Ben. Uh, this is my son Ben's friend from college. He's from Malaysia. And this woman, her eyes just light up. I mean, she's, her jaw opens, her eyes drop, and she leans in really close and speaks loudly and slowly <laughs> and says, welcome to America, you know. <laughs> And I smiled and I said, oh, thanks, it's a pretty good game, wasn't it? You know, and she sort of, it took her a minute, you know, and, and uh, I, you know, I, I kind of like having fun like that, but it's, it's funny because there are some times where we have these categories for what a person, what we think a person should be like, and then they shatter those categories, and you think, wait a minute, you're not from Malaysia, you're not supposed to talk like that, or have this, you know, and there's these these lines that we draw or circles that we draw and we kind of say, okay, if you're this kind of a person, then this is what you're like. And then once in a while, people surprise us, right? Well, let's play a little game. If I, uh, I'm going to call out two groups uh, of people at a time. And if you're the one group, stand up and then, if, and then sit down when I call the other group, okay? How many of you, stand up if you are, how many of you are night people? Anyone? Like, you do your best work at night. Like, midnight is like creative inspiration, baby. All right, be seated. How many of you are morning people? You're like 9 o'clock and you're out. But, but 6 a.m. or 5 a.m., woo I will awaken the dawn. Now, Craig, you stood up for both times. That means you're not sleeping. You're not, you're like... <laughs> Okay, what do you mean by a night person? Okay, how, how many of you are, are, you know, Ford truck people? You know, it's, it's Ford trucks. Stand up if you're, you know, Ford trucks. Come on now. What about Chevys? Any Chevys in the house? Yep. What about those of you that, you know, it's all about a hybrid? Anybody? Come on now, be proud now. That's good. Thank you for doing your part, you know. Any Bronco fans in the house? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Come on now. I know it's a tough season, but we can stand proud. Any Raider fans in the house? Oh, boo! Any Steeler fans in the? Yeah, I see that. I see you. I saw the jersey. Anybody could care less about football? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't even care. How many of you, when it comes to weight loss, you think it's all about eating better? How many of you think that? I'm going to eat, but that's what weight... Stand up, stand up, come on. It, when it comes to weight loss, it's all about eating better. Okay, great. How many of you think, no, 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 no. When it, it's all about exercising more. 
Now, Matthew, you're doing both. I see that. Okay, all right. Probably your doctors would recommend both. I'm not sure. Now, don't stand up for, for these next ones because it gets more touchy. We could go and say, how many of you identify more strongly with being a southerner or being a northerner? Or maybe if we wanted to meddle a little bit more, we could say, how many of you identify with being Republican or Democrat? And different images come to your mind depending on what you think about those categories. And there's other lines that we could begin to draw. What, if, what comes to your mind? Don't raise your hands. Just hypothetical here. When I say the word saint or sinner, where are you in those designations? And typically when we think about people, we think in terms of categories. And usually, this is kind of like, you know, communications 101, but uh, sociologists tell us we make this fundamental attribution error. Have you heard of this? You know, where when you do something wrong, you think it's just because of the external situation. Like, if you're late, it's because of traffic. But when she's late, it's because that's the way she is. <laughs> right? So, so we've got ways of attributing these. So when it's you and me, it's like, oh, well, that's just, oh, it's because of circumstance. But when it's someone else, it's, oh, that's an internal quality. That's a character flaw. And whatever the case may be, we start to have lines that we draw between us and them. And whoever the us is and whoever the them is. In Christian circles, sometimes, sadly, that's over denominations. And so, oh, those Catholics or those we Protestants, or those Charismatics, or those, and we've got lots of versions of us and them. Tonight, we're going to explore a text in Luke 17 that pushes against some of the lines and circles that we've drawn, against some of the dividers that say us and them, or some of the things that say who's excluded and who's included, who we kind of hold at arm's length, and who we sort of identify with. Whom do we identify with? We're going to look actually at two separate texts in Luke 17, so you can turn over to Luke 17, and we're going to look first at the first four verses of Luke 17. In the Common English Bible, this is what it says. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen. But how terrible it is for the person through whom they happen. In other words, look, there are going to be things that cause people to trip up and stumble, but don't be the reason that someone stumbled. It would be better for them to, throw, to be thrown in, excuse me, into a lake with a large stone hung around their necks than to cause one of these little ones to trip and fall into sin. Watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, warn them to stop. If they change their hearts and lives, forgive them. Even if someone sins against you seven times in one day and returns to you seven times and says, I am changing my ways, you have the right to not believe them anymore. No, oh, sorry. You must forgive that person. Part of these instructions, we, we need to see them in the lens, in the light of Jesus talking about what it means to be part of this community. When Jesus comes and, uh, and he deliberately chooses 12 disciples, he's making some pretty deliberate statements. One of the statements he's making is, look, I am setting up a new people, a, 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 a 
community, if you will. There was this hope that Jesus would come and restore Israel. And Jesus is saying, yes and sort of, but I'm redefining it. There's a new community of God's people. And these are some of the ways that you live in this new community. And so the first thing that we would see from this text is that living in community, i.e. the community of God's people, means learning to confront. Living in community means learning to confront. Now, Holly and I have this running joke because whenever uh, she asks my opinion about whether she should say something to a person who's, you know, maybe upset them, offended my standard, she knows what my answer always is. Any guesses? No. <laughs> yeah, see, you, you, you don't know this about me, but, but I don't willingly pick a fight, uh, those kinds of fights. And so when, when something comes up and she says, what do you think, babe? Do you think we should uh, say something or do you think I should? And I, uh, my default is always, no, let it be. But I was thinking about this this week. What are some of the reasons why we don't confront, why we don't talk to a person? Honestly, if we're, if we're really truthful about this, I think maybe one of the biggest reasons why we don't confront is because we don't really care that much about the relationship. Because we don't really want to see the relationship strengthened or, or healed or the barrier removed. We, we don't really care. And maybe, understandably so, maybe we're, we're, we're so hurt by them or the person that we're so bruised by that we think, you know what, I'm not even going to bring it up to them because I just don't care. Now, sometimes you don't confront because you decide that it's not that big of a deal. And that's okay, too. I think that's per probably perfectly fine. I mean, if we brought up every little thing, you don't want to be that guy. You know, uh, hey, excuse me, I just, pardon me, that's my stapler. I just, you know, um, <laughs> you just don't want to do that. Sometimes we don't confront because we don't see ourselves as part of the same community as them. We sort of see it as, well, I've got my tribe, I've got my peeps, I've got the people that I hang out with, and they're those people, and so whatever, I'll just let them be. Instead of recognizing that if we're in Christ, I belong to them and they belong to me, there's no escaping this. Now, how does that change your thinking? What if you say, well, no, it, you know, it doesn't matter, I go to a different church, I, I don't really care, and this is not my, you know. But what if you say, you know what, there's no escaping that my friend Mike, even though he lives in Nashville, Tennessee, go Titans. No, I'm not saying that. I just said that. Mike is my brother. He's connected to me. And so learning, living in community, recognizing that we belong to one another means learning to say, all right, all right, well, let's talk about this, Mike. But I think there's a couple of interesting um, uh, qualifiers maybe. One of the things to, to, to distinguish is, are you confronting a person because they are actually sinning against Christ or against the community? Or are you confronting a person because they've failed to meet an expectation that you had of them? That's an interesting one, isn't it? Sometimes people confront us, uh, this happens quite a bit in ministry, where people confront uh, uh, us with disappointments. And sometimes the disappointments are legitimate because I've created an expectation and I said I was going to do something and I didn't do it. Well, that's, that is sin, a sin. But there are other times where people confront and they say, well, I just thought that you were going to be like this and like this and like this and like this and like this. And so the confrontation is not because you've sinned, but the confrontation is because 
you disappointed me about an expectation that maybe I shouldn't have had. Now, none of you have had that happen, I'm sure, right? But this, it's important to think through this, okay? If I'm living in community, if I really see this person is connected to me, then I'm going to go talk to them. But is this a sin? Am I stopping them from stumbling? Or am I just getting something off my chest? Social media is interesting because there's this uh, interesting illusion that Twitter and Facebook gives us that we really have no consequences for our speech. So a lot of times on Twitter, you'll see someone fire off something, and then they'll put with a hashtag, just saying. <laughs> what is just saying? Like, so, you know, by the way, FYI, I think all people who da-da-da-da-da-da-da are dumb, just saying. Oh, well, if you're just saying, then it's okay. <laughs> what? What is that? You can't do that. You can't fire into the dark. You can't shoot anonymous sort of critiques and slam, you know. And this is the danger of, of social media that I've fallen into so many times. And I have to ask myself, am I saying this because I care about the other person? Or am I saying this because I just got to get it off my chest? Does that make sense? Many, many, many times, Holly and I will talk through something. We'll say, well, are, are, we, are you wanting to do this? How do you see this conversation helping the relationship? And if we honestly can't see a way that this helps the relationship, we'd say, well, maybe this is a release them sort of moment. Because, I, 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 you know, some time ago, you know, uh, uh, someone came to us and said, I just want you to know that you've disappointed me because of this, 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 and this, and I decided six months ago that I wasn't going to talk to you anymore. But since you reached out to me, I'm just, I, I said yes to talk to you, but I just wanted to tell you today over coffee that I'm done talking to you. Could, would you pay for the coffee then? No, I didn't. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying. The goal of the confronting is, is restoring is saving a relationship, is saving a brother. Secondly, from this text, let me read you a Bonhoeffer quote here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together. Brilliant little book. It says, Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Wow! Nothing can be more compassionate than a severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Now, most of us don't want to think like that. Well, I, hate, well, I don't want to do it. But if there's relationship, then there can be that permission. But living in community means more than learning to confront. Living in community means learning to forgive. Forgiveness is oftentimes misunderstood and oftentimes misexplained. Because forgiveness sometimes... Um, we can make maybe two extremes on this. One, on the one hand, we can imagine that forgiveness is a totally private thing. It's just, I go before God, and I say I forgive that person, and then that's it. No actual conversation needs to occur, and it's done. And so one group kind of thinks, well, that's it. It's just simple. It's just easy. I just kind of forgive him in my prayer closet, and it's over. But maybe on the other sort of side of the pendulum, we have this swing that says, no, 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 forgiveness means you've got to be best buds and you've got to go back to your weekly prayer times together and all this stuff. You know? And maybe it's harmful that we haven't talked about the difference maybe between 
uh, forgiveness and trust. Louis Smedes, who the, the, he was the ethics professor at Fuller Seminary for many years, the, chair, he, the ethics chair is named after him in his honor, used to write and lecture on this, and he said, forgiveness is granted, but trust is earned. There's something about that where before the Lord you say, okay, God, this bread and this cup means that God in Jesus has forgiven them, and so you have already said yes to them, and so I join in this, and I add my yes to their forgiveness. And I say, yes, they are forgiven in Christ. But that does not yet mean that, you know, let's just go hang out again, let's let, back, let a person back in that's going to violate or abuse or whatever the situation may be. So there's a difference here. But maybe it's helpful to think of forgiveness as a kind of embrace. Um, several, a lot of different writing has been uh, done on, the, on this language, exclusion and embrace. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale who wrote a great piece on this. But Holly, are you still in here? Is my wife in here? I know she was in the back with one of our kids. Yep. Yes? No? Would you, are, are you able to come up here, babe? I, I, need, I need you for an illustration. <laughs> Not that kind of illustration. My wife, everybody, Holly. So, if, if you just—I didn't talk to you about this before. And please forgive me. Um, so, in some ways, forgiveness is different than a violation because I can inflict a violation on a, on someone without their will in this, right? I can go up and I can punch Daniel in the nose. Now, that would be really bad for me because he's very strong. But I could punch Daniel in the nose without Daniel being involved in that. Do you know what I'm saying? He doesn't have to choose that. But you can't inflict forgiveness on a person. You can't say, forgiveness! There, whether you like it or not. What? Wolf writes about forgiveness as a, the picture of it being like an embrace. And I think an embrace, he, he expands this picture, and it's really beautiful because it's this, that to give an embrace requires enlarging yourself. It requires making yourself larger to say, you know what? By the grace of God, here's a certain largeness. to my, I'm expanding my heart. And it also means to receive the embrace, she needs to sort of make herself <laughs> smaller, you know? I remember when we first were dating, she couldn't wear heels because that would be awkward. But anyway, you sort of make yourself... Still you're still that way. That's true. But we don't care as much. So, so you sort of make yourself smaller to receive the embrace. But an embrace is social. In other words, before God, we can choose, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. But it only becomes an embrace when the other person says, I receive, I repent, I receive. Does that make sense? Thank you, babe. <laughs> Does that make sense? That there's, there is something where it begins before God and we're releasing, but there's something more that says you go, you talk with, you embrace them back in. Now, that's why Jesus says, if they repent and they say, look, I'm changing my ways, you say, all right, the embrace becomes complete. The embrace becomes complete when the other person repents and makes himself small and receives it. Does that make sense? I think if you think of this in a, in a massive way, 
God extended his arms through Jesus on the cross. He says, I forgive. I forgive. I forgive. But it requires that we make ourselves small and say, I repent. I repent. I repent. And then that embrace is complete. You see that? When you think of this, if you think of forgiveness through the language of exclusion and embrace, it may be helpful to ask yourself this question. Whom are you excluding? Whom are you excluding? Who are you excluding? Which is the better grammar here? Editor? Alex? Whom? Am I right? Whom? Whom? Okay, good. We've got editors in the house. We've got to get this right. And what I mean by this, this question is double-edged. When you think of sinners, do you exclude yourself? When you think of a person who needs forgiving, who needs saving, do you exclude yourself? When you think of the redeemed, are you excluding anyone who is within the community of faith? You see what I'm saying, how this question works on, on a couple edges of the angles? When you think of the ones that Jesus has died for and that Jesus has redeemed, the ones who are part of the family of God, part of the community of God, are you excluding that guy, that person? Anytime we choose to sort of say, well, no, 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 well, us and them. Look, there's a very real us and them when it comes to those who are in Christ and those who are not. But Paul makes it very clear that for all who are in Christ, there's no more Greek, there's no more Jew, there's no more males. In other words, all those little lines, night person, morning person, truck person, erase it. All that matters is, are you in Christ? If you are, then I cannot exclude you from forgiveness. And I can't exclude myself from my own need of forgiveness. You see it? The story that we're going to pick up later in the, or in, in the later part of this chapter, at first glance, you would think, well, I don't, well, you know, this is a separate story. And it is. If you were doing an actual sort of study of the Gospels and you were marking off different sections, or whatever, this section, next section, stands by itself. But I think there's something in it that, we could, that, that, could, that could speak to us tonight along these same themes. Verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Stop for a second. If you could picture a map, some of you are visual this way. Imagine on the northern part here, a region called Galilee. On the southern part, a region called Judea. And in the middle, this region called Samaria. Now you're wondering, well, what are these regions? They're not there in the Old Testament. No, they're not. These are regions that Rome made up. They basically drew some province lines and they called it these areas. And so Jews, when they were walking from, because Jerusalem's down here in Judea, and when they were walking from Galilee down to Jerusalem as they would need to for certain feasts or celebrations or whatever, they wouldn't go through Samaria. We'll talk about why in just a moment, but they would go around it. Well, here Luke, the storyteller, has us on the edge of our seat. Well, not us, because we don't get it yet. But his listeners would have. Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. If you're listening to Jesus, you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, who's he going to run into? Jesus on the border of Galilee and Samaria? What kind of shady characters are we going to meet here? This is like, I don't know, whatever, Compton or something. I don't know. 
As he entered a village, ten men with skin diseases approached him, keeping their distance from him. Now this is by Levitical law. Some of your translations say leprosy, but the truth is any kind of skin disease was considered a, 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 a ritual impurity. Imagine that. You got the chicken pox and you're being treated like a leper, like an outcast. This is just part of the deal. So these people with these skin diseases, skin conditions, whatever it is, they approach approach him, but they keep their distance from him, and they raise their voices because they're far away. And they say, Jesus, Master, show us mercy. Now there's lots that's built into even the wording here. Luke is very particular about having people call Jesus Master. You see that in a number of different parables. So these These ten skin-diseased folks are acknowledging that Jesus is not just teacher. There's some kind of authority to him. And they say, Master, show us mercy. And when Jesus saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they left, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, so stop for a minute. At this point in the story, you're thinking, cleansed. Wow, a miracle. They were right. Jesus does have authority. And then one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, returned and praised God with a loud voice. Now, at this point in the story, you're thinking, wow, that's pretty cool, that guy. Way to go, man, that guy. He not only was one of the ones who had faith, he called Jesus master, but he comes back and he's he's thankful and wow. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet and thanked him period. He was a Samaritan. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) This is that moment all of a sudden where you're thinking, whoa, 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 Luke, what? I thought we were just dealing with ten lepers. Now you're telling me that one of them was a Samaritan. Jesus replied, weren't ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? No one returned to praise God except this foreigner, Then Jesus said to him, get up and go. Your faith has healed you. Who are the Samaritans? Right after Solomon's reign in the Old Testament, Israel gets split in two kingdoms, northern part, southern part. Northern part gets called Israel. Southern part gets called Judah. Israel has more bad kings, way more wicked kings than Judah does, so they get get in trouble first. Assyria comes in 722 B.C. and takes them and scatters them. Now, just the way that the Assyrians rolled back then, this was just kind of the way they did it. They would take a people that they conquered and they would resettle them in some other area. So guess who they leave behind in the northern part of Israel? They left behind all the sick, all the lame, all the crippled, all the ones who were weak. And then they scattered these ten tribes to other places. And then they go up to some of the other peoples, other uh, uh, ethnic groups that they had conquered, and they said, hey, how would you like some beachfront property by the Sea of Galilee? Have we got a deal for you? And they resettle them in this area. And they take, so they take other nations, other ethnic groups, and they bring them down. And they say, here, this is your land now. Forced kind of resettlement. The Assyrians are certainly not the last to do something like that. Nevertheless, the Samaritans are the people who, rec- who are a result of that. They're this half-breed. Except that they insist that they are worshiping Yahweh as much as the Jews are. In 584, 586, 580, you know, somewhere around there, in three separate invasions, Judah gets taken 
uh, to Babylon. This is all B.C., so this is later, even though it's 580-something, okay? Later, in 445 B.C., they come back. Remember this? Nehemiah, they build a wall, all this stuff. Well, they come back, and guess who's living just north of them? Samaritans. Now, the people down in Judah, what do they have? They rebuild what? Not just the walls, but they rebuild the temple. And they begin to worship, and they, they say, you know what? We are the real people of God. We're pure. We're devout. We're the ones who are stayed true. This is the temple. And the Samaritans say, no, no, no. We've got this mountain up here. I think it's Mount Gerizim. We've got this place where we worship, and this is the true place. Do you remember the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well? Now, stop for a minute. Could you think of any, I don't know, race or religion that claims to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, and yet they have a very different vision of who that God is? Can you think of anyone like that? Yeah. The anger, the prejudice, the hate that you might feel in your heart toward an Arab Muslim might not be too unlike the anger, prejudice, hate that a Jew felt for a Samaritan. Now Jesus is messing with them. It's one thing to heal someone with skin diseases, but you mean to tell me that a Samaritan gets healed? What? Jesus, what? You mean to tell me that a Samaritan came back and worshipped at the feet of Jesus? Now hang on just a minute. Did they get their doctrine right? Did they know this or that? Whoa! How can this guy be the hero of the story or one of the heroes of the story? How can this guy be the picture poster person for gratitude? He's a Samaritan. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But it makes you realize that while you and I are always tempted to draw lines of who's in and who's out, Luke makes a point to show us that Jesus isn't excluding anyone. That whosoever will may come. That whoever says, I need help, have mercy, Master, have mercy. That Jesus says, all right, we're cleansed. That Jesus isn't excluding anyone. Now zoom it in from social, political issues and zoom it into our hearts. Is there anything inside of you that sometimes when you're around other Christians or maybe when you're in church, you're convinced that you're on the outside? So, well, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm divorced or I'm this or, or I've, I've had this happen or, you know, I... I I, you know, I had sex out of marriage. I, I, I did this and I, I did that. We all have different tapes that play in our head that says why you don't belong. Why you're second class. Why there is a line even in church between us and them. What I want you to know tonight is Jesus says, no, there isn't. There's no line. What line? Go and be made whole. 
powerful to really believe that there's not a stain too great. There's not a mistake so damaging. How can a Samaritan stop being a Samaritan? Can't undo that. There are things in our lives that you can't undo. I can't undo that, Lord. This happened. I did this. They did that. I was part of this. How do you undo that? You can't un-Samaritan yourself. And yet Jesus says, go and be made whole. That's amazing. Jesus, Jesus isn't excluding anybody from What Luke over and over again shows us, though, is that the people who recognize that they're the lowly and the poor and the outsider, they're always the one who experience the reversal, right? Luke makes a point to show us Jesus saying, woe to you who are rich, and woe to even the story of Lazarus and the rich man. All of this stuff, we hear Luke banging this drum over and over again that says, look, if you think you're it, you're not. But if you're convinced that you, you got nothing, Jesus has good news for you. You're not excluded. It's not too late. You're not out. I think something begins to happen in us when we realize this, when we see this. Gratitude begins to take over. Imagine what it's like to be that one. We don't know if the other nine were Samaritans or not. We don't know that. Maybe, let's, let's speculate here, maybe because that one was not only a leper but also a Samaritan, maybe that one knew how amazing it was that Jesus cleansed him. Do you know there's something powerful about this? Luke, throughout his gospel, also makes a point to show us the significance of the temple, and it shows up in several ways as this motif throughout his gospel. So Jesus tells these lepers, go and present yourselves to the priest to be clean. Where are the priests? Where would, they, where would you find a priest? At the temple. We don't know if these guys ever made it to the temple, but where does this, this one Samaritan leper, where does he go to give thanks to God? To who? Maybe it's not about the Samaritan temple or the Jewish temple. Maybe it's Jesus, the living temple. And that maybe the place where we all come and bow our broken knees and say, yes, I am a leper in need of cleansing. And yes, I've been forgiven. And yes, I've been made whole. And yes, I've been brought in. The place where we come to say our thanks is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's why we saved communion for this final moment in our service because this is where we come to say thanks. Thank you, God. Years ago, Ross Parsley uh, used to be the worship pastor here at New Life. He was worship pastor here for some 17, 18 years. When I showed up here in the summer of 2000, Ross was already telling this story. I never witnessed this firsthand, but I've talked to other New Lifers who said, I remember this story, not only the story, but they remember the incident. 
But there was a man, he's gone to be with the Lord now. His name's Art Espinoza. Anyone remember Art? And forgive me if the story is not quite there, but this is how I remember Ross telling it. Art used to wave his hanky. Art the hanky man, right? Was an usher. And from what I understand, Art was, there was a lot of art to love, let's say that. And uh, as an usher, the worship was going on, he was just dancing and just waving his hanky up and down the aisles, sweating the storm. And then he'd take people to their seats and give them this big hug and show them the seats and, you know, people could sweat on them and stuff, you know. And finally someone had to say, Art, this is a little awkward. You know, you're kind of making people uncomfortable. You know, New Life has never uh, made it a point to be um, super, I don't know what the word is, whatever. We just worship, okay? We're not thinking as much sometimes about how others feel, but someone had to say something. So someone said something to Art. So Art, you're making people feel uncomfortable. And Art says, yeah, I'm sorry. I just, Jesus set me free from alcoholism years ago. And I just can't get over it. I can't get over it. I think grateful people are people who forgive quickly. Because there's no us in them. It's uh, you know what? Yeah, man. <sighs> Want me to tell you what I've been forgiven of? We're all in this community together. May it be that we are people who never get over it who never get over the fact, the miracle that Jesus came to a Samaritan leper, someone who had no business being in, and all of a sudden said, you're whole, you're clean, you're cleansed, you're not a sinner. I call you a saint now. Wait, but what? No, you're in Christ. No, you belong. No, no, I don't really belong. You don't understand. No, 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 no. This is... Why... Does living in community mean that we learn to confront and learn to forgive? You know why? Because this is a Jesus community. This is a community defined by Jesus. And if it's defined by Jesus, then none of us ever move past this table. Joe or Matthew, whoever's going to play, would you come and get ready? The word for the Lord's Supper is the word Eucharist. Eucharist, there's lots of resonant words inside of it. Charis itself is the word for grace. But Eucharistio is this word related to thanksgiving. How do you respond to grace? How do you respond to the incomparable, mind-blowing grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ? There's one word. Gratitude. What can you say? God, I'll do better. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, great, great, but that's not the point. Well, God, I'll just use it. Just be like the Samaritan leper who falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 